Jerry Whelan. You're an Irish Jesuit based in Rome, chair of the Department of Fundamental Theology in the Jesuit Gregorian University there. We've been doing a series of interviews since you've returned home to get a bit of a holiday from Rome here this summer. And one of the things in our first interview, which was a kind of a roundup of the nine years of Pope Francis, that came out that intrigued me was, you said to me at the end, in this process of synodality and the office of the synod, who will be then feeding back into the curia where this synodal process will go and what needs to be implemented. And I was, I suppose, thinking along liberal lines of, you know, some of the, the women's agenda, maybe the gay rights agenda within the church. And you said to me, well, you know, also there are people who are saying we want the Latin Mass back and we've made our representation and we are waiting to hear what you're going to do about that. So this does raise the question of objective truth and how it's reached and how you come to what is the right thing to do for the universal church as a whole. And that's a bit of a headache. So how does Pope Francis, what's his thinking on that? Can it shed light on how this synodal process will evolve? This is the deepest of questions that came up really in our first interview. So uh, where do I go with this? I'd like to introduce something I often talk about, my, my own specialist area in philosophy, theology and the thought of Bernard Lonergan. So before I talk about Pope Francis, mm -hmm. I'd like to say like what should be the case mm -hmm. in my opinion, which is only my opinion. So objectivity, you see, is, is such a key issue. Subjectivity, objectivity. Lonergan worked on this issue at a philosophical level. It's epistemology, the philosophy of knowing. And uh, he makes a proposal that can seem kind of obvious, but it's just not so obvious in, in philosophical circles. Recognize in yourself, uh, he invites you to intellectual conversion. Recognize in yourself that in whatever situation you're in, there is a constant structure to the way you think and do. You know, neuroscience is exploring these sort of questions now. Yeah. The results are very compatible with what Lonergan says. But basically, the, we experience the data, the data. We wait for insight. We puzzle about things and we get acts of insight. But not every insight is correct. So there's another level, which is the most mysterious of all in some ways, where we have an ability to decide or to judge which insight is true and then there's another step of uh, responding effectively to the facts that, uh, that we have just affirmed and making value judgments and decisions. And again, Lonergan would say there is a sense of true values, of authentic discerning, where the question of objectivity remains even at the decision-making level, the value level. Recognising that in yourself is key, he says, to then using it more consistently and recognising what you're doing when you're doing it, for example. Can I just ask you about that affective? That's not just a feeling, is it? I mean, is it, oh, I feel good about this. Is it a deeper thing, like a sense of peace or a sense of rightness? It is, yes. Uh, I know, Pat, that you're very involved with Ignatian spirituality, and I hear that as a kind of Ignatian question. I probably don't have time to talk a lot about this, but it's intimately connected with the discernment of spirits of St. Ignatius. But Lonergan would use other thinkers. He'd say, we have a feeling response to the situation, uh, but there is a hierarchy to those feelings. So you can have, you know, self-interest, uh, the vital values, or you want to eat and sleep, etc. Or you're so inspired by the self-sacrifice of somebody that you're prepared to do similarly. It's a schooling thing from youth to uh, be able to cultivate 
recognizing the, the more ecstatic feelings, the more outward pushing feelings. So it's not self-centeredness, it's self-transcendence, social values, cultural values, religious values, uh, he'd say. And then that's just how you evaluate a situation. Mm -hmm. And then what am I going to do about it? And he calls that all part of a fourth level of consciousness. So if that's the way we work as individuals, it can become a measure for what we suggest for the church. We've spoken on other occasions about historical consciousness, that uh, we're all embedded in a time-based situation where we have to pass through these stages, experience, understanding, judging, decision. And that's true of the church. It's true of every society, in a sense, you know, democratic decision-making, etc., the processes that lead into it. So this becomes a measure of whether it's happening authentically or not. But anyway, trying to, to roll back now a little bit to talk about synodality. In contrast to historical consciousness, there has been, prior to discovering this sort of more historical, interior uh, aspect of the human person, we tended to have a classicist mentality where uh, you really think that concepts pop out of nowhere almost. You, you take a good look at something and you have an act of intuition and you know the truth. Also, implicitly, there's a sense that, well, there's one truth and there's one culture that expressed it. So it would be very Eurocentric, it'd be very male-centric, very class, upper-class-centric. Historical consciousness has a, a very different flavour to it. But remember that Lonergan has spoken about the moment of judgment. So he will insist that authentic subjectivity leads to objectivity. Mm -hmm. Now, the classicist will tend to accuse all historical conscious people of being relativist. Now, the th trouble is, I mean, that there's a sort of irony, Lonergan will agree, most of them actually are. Uh, in most cases, the modern way of moving to historical consciousness throws objectivity out the window and says, no, it really it is subjective. When you're getting to questions of value decisions, uh, there is, it's all context and culture, yeah, etc. So there's this tension of subjectivity, objectivity, and you see now already that it's, we're getting more complex. Mm. But I believe Lonergan's epistemology has a great deal to contribute to negotiating that tension. So synodality. The radicality of it in many ways is simply, it's in the spirit of Vatican II, and it is an invitation to the church to move to historical consciousness away from a classicist mentality. But in the 50 years that we've had after Vatican II, we've realised that it's really very difficult. If I may give outrageous oversimplifications. In the 1970s, there was a lot of experimentation, you might say, moving to the historical consciousness. But you could come to some rather extreme positions, like Jesus could not be divine because, etc., for some reason or other that we figured out. Or, I might add, that an exaggerated use of Marxist categories in the liberation theology of, of Latin America. So something has to be reined in. The Catholic Church has always had a principle of the magisterium as preserving the role, what, what Lonergan would say, judgment and decision uh, for itself. But arguably... The way we did it for 35 years of the pontificates of John Paul II and Benedict had a classicist dimension, this sort of intuition. You read the latest papal encyclical, you have the truth. To jump a bit to one thing that Pope Francis says in his letter on moral theology, sexuality, family, Amoris Laetitia, radical, it hasn't been caught, I think, for, for its radicality. He insists that our job is to form consciences and not to replace them. So you don't replace conscience with the latest papal encyclical. Anyway, 
back to synodality, the clearly it's a product of historical consciousness and it stresses the importance of the moment of listening experience, the moment of accumulating many insights towards what should we be doing in the church. Like the $64,000 question remains, well, who judges the true insight uh, that's relevant for now and who yeah. just decides on pastoral policy? This Lonergan perspective would seem very conservative to some people, I think, the more liberal progressive wing. But it would insist that in the Catholic Church, you're never going to leave too far behind the notion that it does pertain to the bishop to have the act of judging, saying the final word amongst all the insights yeah. and deciding or all the bishops or the, the magisterium of the church. So what's the use? Is there anything new in synodality? Here, I'd like to uh, jump back a little bit, if I may, to Paul VI, an encyclical he wrote uh, just before the end of Vatican II, Ecclesiam Suam, uh, the church itself. From beginning to end of this encyclical, he says the church is about dialogue. Now, it dialogues with the modern world. The Church in the Modern World is the title of one of the documents of Vatican II. But dialogue internal to the Church as, as central to its identity. I mean, this is very ahead of his time, really, that, that, that he was writing that. He points to this key issue that, look, not everybody can get their way. You're listening to everybody, but there is still a filtering process and there is the authority to judge and decide that remains with the bishop. But then he explores that. Well, what about abuse of power uh, by mm. a bishop? And he raises two points. First of all, he says, look, there is not an election. It's not a democracy. So you can get away with abuse of power in a way in, in the Catholic Church. That is, it's not the same as a, a modern democracy. He says, P Paul VI. So, well, what are the consequences? He says, literally, there are two of them. First is, there is at risk the immortal soul of that bishop. He has fallen into sin if he is not giving due respect to the moments of, of experience and insight and this mysterious, as I mentioned, and wonderful capacity to affirm the true insights, if, if he's abusing that and making some rapid judgments uh, that haven't uh, come from that process, then his immortal soul is at risk. But then he said a second thing. This is very scriptural, really, uh, from St. Paul. You will divide the community. There will be evidence. There will be fruits of a divided community because your decisions as a leader have so evidently been inappropriate that you cannot build community or harmony in a community based on that kind of falsity. That's interesting, isn't it? That second one in particular, you can see that then the people speak back. Mm -hmm. And I suppose... In terms of what you're saying, what strikes me is this vision of Pope Francis of that whole synodal process is that even if we do accept that the bishop, if you take the Lonergan model that the bishop maybe makes a judging, but you're hoping that the bishop is also engaged in a synodal process in his own diocese and area. Yes. Staying with the, the dilemmas, you know, of human sinfulness, uh, including amongst bishops, there's a theologian in Paris, a laywoman who teaches in the Jesuit college there, Agnès de Marzière. She's very involved in the synodal process, especially in France. And she uses Lonergan and she says, look, the conversions are all important. If the bishop is not religiously converted, morally converted and something like intellectually converted, then all of the legislation on synodality in the world is not going to work because you can manipulate the, the structure, even if it's a synodal structure. You know, it's an appeal for goodwill. These structural changes, they're only as good as the people who are going to implement them. 
But I believe this more epistemological, theological method thinking of, of Lonergan can contribute to this process as well. It's fascinating and it does help to at some level even if you leave out the bishop being because I know for some women this will be an issue because they'll say well then we'll never get to make a decision because we can't become a priest never mind a bishop so it leaves that kind of question but of course there's always hope that things change and will evolve and it won't always be that way if you were in the church of England or the Anglican church woman would be involved therefore in that kind of decision making role but would you agree then with the question I've raised that that importance then of the bishop being engaged in his diocese in a synodal model, really. Yes, utterly, utterly important. But you brought up the question of the Anglican Church. As we do this interview, the Lambeth Conference has just finished. So they have this once every 10 years. It's their closest to Vatican II, you might say, but of course it's very different. But here we are in the Catholic Church talking about synodality. The Anglican Church operates this expression of a very synodal approach, but they have been very divided. They really struggle with the questions of sexual ethics. They're not gone off the table. The women priests, women bishops, but all the more so gay uh, bishops married and their partners turning up to the uh, Lambeth Conference has caused a great deal of problems with the bishops of the Global South who represent the vast majority of the numbers of actual Anglicans. They don't have a magisterium the way Catholics do, but they haven't solved their problems. You know, there's this split uh, that seems to be increasingly likely now between whatever you call it, you know, a conservative right wing and a progressive left wing. Again, interesting because I suppose these are the challenges and this is human life. If I may add one thing, Pope Francis is aware of these dilemmas. His last encyclical, it's kind of circular, it touches a large number of issues. It's almost like his last encyclical and it's a reflection on many questions from his whole life, not just his pontificate. However, he's always updating his thinking. He's a remarkably up-to-date person. Well, he's synodal, he's listening. He's aware, for example, that he talks about dialogue all the time uh, and listening to the people. But The world is increasingly witnessing populist leaders that lead badly. And they will claim dialogue that I've listened to the people and I'm against the elites uh, on their behalf. So he explores this in a unique way in this later encyclical, in a way he has not done before. And it's back to something almost like Lonergan. He's saying, look, it's dialogue, but authentic people in dialogue orient towards some convergence on truth questions. There are true values that authentic people will be gravitating towards. You work out the values in concrete decisions. So it's not a question of saying we've made our mind up already about the true values. There's no need for dialogue. But he presses the envelope more in this recent encyclical saying, look, there is this dilemma of dialogue needing to converge on truth claims. It's really important when we see that. And that's a great point about leaders who are emerging, this populist leaders who are sweeping even America as we see it now and taking a lot of people with them and it doesn't necessarily mean that it's truth. So this Lonergan method is certainly something you believe is a very helpful template for getting to some kind of objectivity within the historical consciousness framework. That's right, yes. Authentic subjectivity can culminate in in objectivity. And then you can use that as a measure for recognising the opposite in social situations when there is decline that is the product of bad decision-making. And actually, there's a whole theology of saying, under grace, God 
transforms our ability to be authentic and the religions of the world are part of a process of redemption in history where we reverse decline and promote progress but starting with the question of culture of ideas and then it will move into more practical questions of policy making <laughs>